is a, a story of rescue and redemption. It's a love story. It's a story of God's extravagant love for humanity. It's a story of family love, a story of romantic love, but it's a picture of God redeeming people. And we're going to be looking at the nature of God's redemption a little bit this morning as we kind of unpack this story. Now, the book of Ruth, and I won't, I'll spare you all the historical kind of facts. We've done that uh, over the past few weeks. But the book of Ruth is this incredible little small treasure buried in the, kind of in the heart of the Old Testament. And it unfolds during a very difficult time in the life of Israel, during the period of the judges. It was a period when Israel sort of abandoned their kind of desires for God and chased the desires for themselves. And the book of Judges actually refers to it as an incredibly dark time where each person chased what they thought was best in their own heart and basically abandoned God. God wanted to be the people's king. The people didn't want a king. God established judges. The people rebelled. The judges would give God's correction. God would bring them back. It was this sort of cycle of rebellion and redemption that was unfolding during this time. And we've been looking at the past four weeks kind of at these four movements that make up this book. And they come in these really well-done sections or chapters that sort of move us through the flow of this narrative. And the first one really focused on this idea of misery, focused on Naomi, who I'll tell you a little bit more about in a minute, about her misery and the misfortune and the struggle and the, and the, the difficulty that she's had as life has unfolded in incredibly difficult circumstances and how she believes that God was against her. And it walks us through that sort of category of misery. And we step into the second movement last week and we begin to see God's kindness coming through, God's faithfulness coming through. And what we're going to explore this morning as we look at the story is sort of the need to awaken to the kindness of God and understanding the nature of God's redemption, what that looks like. Because it plays a really important part in our life as followers of Christ. So let me catch up to speed a little bit with where we are in the story before we jump into uh, chapter 2 this morning. Now, the book of, of Ruth takes place in that really dark period that I mentioned, a period called the Judges. And a famine had happened. A famine struck the land. And oftentimes in the Old Testament, famines were a result of people's disobedience. The people were disobedient. God would use famine as a correction tool. The people would call out to God. God would come and heal their land. And they would return for a season of sort of gratefulness just until they rebelled again. And it was a cycle that happened. But famine had struck Israel, it had struck the promised land, the land that God had given to the Israelites. And we learn in our story that there is a family of four. A man by the name of Elimelech had a wife named Naomi, and he had two sons, Malon and Kilion. And when the famine came to the promised land, Elimelech thought it was time to move his family on. Like, we were going to starve to death if we stay here. Even though God promised to protect us and provide for us in this land, we're going to leave. I've got to take my family elsewhere. It says that Elimelech gathered his family and he took them to the land of Moab. Now, Moab was across the Dead Sea. It wasn't a, a hated enemy, but they didn't get along really well with the Israelites because the Moabs came from the descendant of, of wicked Lot. And they worshipped a god by the name of Chemosh, which was a false god, and the Israelites wouldn't have anything to do with them. They didn't actually war against them as enemies, but they didn't get along kind of in the spirit of anything else. And so, in fact, Israelites were forbidden to worship with Moabites. But Elimelech takes his family over to the land of the Moabites because he hears that they've got food. And he's thinking, I've got to take care of my family. If God's not going to do it, I'll do it. So he loads up his family, and they head over there to this land of Moab. And as soon or soon thereafter, when they arrive, Elimelech, we learn that he dies. 
Naomi is left with a widow as a widow, but she's got these two sons, and these two sons marry Moabite women. Now, marrying foreign women that were Moabites was not actually forbidden. It was just sort of frowned upon. There were some intermarriages in the Old Testament that were forbidden, but marrying Moabites was not one of them. But they couldn't worship together. And since they were in this foreign land, there were probably not a lot of other choices. Malon and Kilion kind of fell in love with Moabite women, and they got married. These women could not give birth to kids. We don't really know why. We just know that they, they could not have children. And for 10 years or so, they tried unsuccessfully to reproduce. And then, in kind of an act of something, both these two sons die. Malon and Kilion, they die. And, and Naomi is left with two foreign Moabite daughters, Orpha and Ruth. Now, the Bible tells us that uh, this was a really low point for Naomi. And as she's left with the death of her husband and as, and as a widow, that, and she's left without sons, her options as a widow are really sort of, well, they're really bleak. Not a lot of people to provide for her, not always to take care of herself. She was pretty much done. Life was hopeless, and she was desperate. And about that time, she heard that God, the God of Israel, had come to the aid of the Israelites, and now the famine was lifted, food was growing again, things were happening, and she's stuck over here in Moab with two foreign daughters. Living in the middle of tragedy and desperation, he hears that God has come to the rescue of his people. So she looks at her daughters-in-law and she says, we're going to have to go back to Israel. We're going back. God's come to the aid of the people and maybe it's our only chance. So she gears him up and these two young women, Orpha and Ruth, they set out on the road with Naomi back to the promised land. Headed back to where God now has lifted the famine and is providing. Somewhere along the way, though, in this journey, it's about a 55-mile walk, right? Somewhere along the way, she sort of changes her heart. She gets down the road a little bit, she stops, and she says, I can't do this to you guys. I really can't take you with me. My life is so desperate and so awful that if I bring you with me, there is nothing for you. At least if you stay here, you can return to your parents, your mother's households. You can find new husbands. If you stay here, there is hope for you. But if you go with me, your destiny is tied to mine, and mine is despair and hopelessness, and it is miserable. In fact, it's worse for me than for you, right? So she goes through this whole thing, and, and, and the women say, there's no way. We're leaving you. We will be with you. We will take care of you. Where you go, we'll go, that kind of thing. And she says, no, you can't. Don't go with me. So Orpha says, okay. She hugs her, and they weep, and they cry, and then she leaves. But it says Ruth clung to her. And she looks at Ruth, and she says, don't you see that your sister-in-law is going? Go with her. There is hope for you if you go. And we have this famous little speech that, that we talked about in like week two, where, where Ruth looks at her, and she says, don't you tell me to go. Where you go, I'll go. Where you live, I will live. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. Where you die, I will be buried there also, saying, look, I am following you. I love you. My life has been changed by your God. He's now my God. And where you go, I'm going to die there too. I will be with you forever. I'm forsaking my life. And we talked at length about the sacrifice that Ruth was making. When Naomi realized that she couldn't get Ruth to kind of change her mind, they set back off down the road. And as they were going into Bethlehem, right, and which means house of bread, it's a name, what it means in Hebrew. So they were going back into the house of bread. They're going back into Bethlehem. Everyone was stirred. I mean, it had been 10 years since Elimelech and his family had left. And it was a huge deal when they left. And here they come back, but it's not all of them. It's just Naomi with this foreign person. And the whole town is stirred. And the women in the town started going, can that really be Naomi? Naomi's name meant pleasant. It meant lovely. Could that really be lovely and pleasant? And Naomi stops and she says, don't call me that. Don't call me lovely. Don't call me pleasant. <clears throat> I want you to change my name. Call me Mara, which means bitter. In fact, I want you to change what you call me to bitter because my life is bitter. God's hand 
is against me. I went away full and I'm returning absolutely empty. God has devastated my life, right? Naomi was living in this deep sort of bitterness. Then chapter one, movement one ends with the idea they're coming into town as the barley harvest is beginning. Well, last week we looked at the second movement where Ruth, they get into town and Ruth looks at Naomi and she says, listen, let me go and work. All right, let me go and glean the fields. And we talked about that there was a Mosaic law that allowed for a term called gleaning, which meant the orphans and the widows and the foreigners during the harvest time could walk the outside edges of the field and pick up any thrown away or trash or missed grain stalks. So as the harvesters were going through and they were picking and they were cutting these things and they were bundling them up into sheaves, anything that fell by law, the foreigners and the orphans and the widows on the sides of the field were allowed to go by and glean. And Ruth says, let me go and glean for us. Well, sure enough, as it turns out, it ha- the, the story tells us that there's a relative that was connected to Elimelech. And his name was Boaz and he was a man of great standing. And this is a really high point because we learned a term, and we're going to talk a little bit more about it today, called a kinsman redeemer. That it was an Old Testament principle that if, if you had someone in your family, right, that had something horrible happen to them, whether it was a widow that lost a husband or, or you had to sell yourself into slavery, which happened to pay off a debt, there was a person that could purchase, if he was a relative, a close relative, he could purchase you out of that debt, or as, in terms of this situation, he could marry, right, the widow to prolong the family name. Odd concept for us, but it played a really important societal role. Well, there was this man named Boaz who was a kinsman redeemer who was on Elimelech's side. And it just so happens that when Ruth went out to the field, she found herself in this man Boaz's field. Found herself there. It's God's providence is at work, right? No accident. She starts gleaning and she's working hard and Boaz shows up and he looks at his foreman and he says, hey, who is that? Who's that? That woman over there that I haven't seen, I know she's not one of the girls that works for me, and she's gleaning the fields, and the foreman tells Boaz who it is. He goes, you know who that is? That's the Moabitess that came back with Naomi. You've heard the story. And she's worked hard all day. She's only taken a tiny short rest. So Boaz goes over to her, and he looks at her, and he says, I've heard all about you. I know the kindness that you showed your mother-in-law, the way that you sort of traded your life, the way that you said, hey, look, your, your God will be my God. I, I remember that. I heard that story. And plus what my foreman has told you about you is remarkable. And he said, so listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to come over here, right? And I want you to, to glean with my servant girls. And when you get tired, when life gets really hard out here, what I want you to do is get a drink from the water jars that the men have filled. And he shows her this incredible kindness. And she says, she says, what have I done to get such favor in your eyes? She goes, he goes, you haven't done anything, but you have taken refuge in the wings of God. And may God repay you for the way that you have shown kindness to your mother-in-law and how you have found favor with him. He's basically saying, listen, God is showing you this. And she says, may I continue to find favor in your sight. And this is where we pick up today. The second half of that story, as Ruth is now showered with favor from Boaz, We're going to talk about Naomi's kind of theological shift as she begins to awaken to the kindness of God and the exact nature of God's redemption. So all that retelling of the story to get you to Ruth chapter 2, verse 14. If you've got your Bible, I want you to go ahead and open it up there. And we're going to explore those verses uh, together and pull out a couple of things that I think are really powerful truths this morning. So before we do that, let's take a moment and pray. And we'll ask God God just to illuminate our heart through his word. Lord, I know that's a lot of retelling of the story, but I just, I love this story so much. I just think that if we, if we miss it, if we miss those, those deep pieces, it, 
we lose the depth of its context. And so, God, I pray that as we think about this story and its movements, as we think about how you kind of traced your, your love and your grace through the lives of Naomi and Ruth, as we see that today, may we understand that that promise is still for us. That, God, you are a God of kindness and that you are a God of grace and love and that your redemption is, well, it's beyond understanding. So, Lord, I pray that as we open your word, you would illuminate our hearts. We know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. You are the true God. And, Lord, we pray that you would teach our hearts this morning. Take a moment right where you sit and, and just ask God to teach you something, something that your, your heart or your soul needs to hear this morning, that God would speak that directly to you. pray for someone beside you, in front of you, behind you, even if you don't know their name, just, just whisper something for them, pray for them, be in the habit of praying for other people. God, we pray that as we, we look at these verses and we look at these simple but profound truths this morning, they would penetrate our hearts. Lord, we love you and we thank you for Jesus. So verse 13, Ruth ends by saying, may I continue to find favor with you, Boaz. May I continue to be blessed by your generosity. Then a short break happens, and we pick up in verse 14, and this is where we are. Chapter 2, verse 14. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here and have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. And when she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain, and she ate all that she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. Rather, pull out some stalks from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up, and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned the field until evening, and then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. And she carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered, and Ruth brought out what, what he had gave her and what he had left over from when she had eaten enough. And her mother-in-law asked, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one whose place she had been working. The name of the man I work with today is Boaz, she says. And the Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He's not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead. She then added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabitess said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all of my grain." Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with his girls because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to her servant girls, the servant girls of Boaz, to glean until the barley and wheat harvest were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. So we sort of see this uh, continued act of incredible generosity that Boaz has for Ruth the Moabitess, for Ruth the poor foreign widow. And this sort of additional act of generosity, after she's gleaned even more during the day and mealtime comes, he invites her over to come and sit with his actual employees, the actual people that worked for him. And as she does, he offers her some roasted grain. Now you've got to remember, Ruth has been living in, in stark or abject poverty, right? She has been basically picking up trash. She is a widow with no chance to make money on her own to earn for herself. Her and her Naomi are in the worst of situations. She's basically walking the fields, picking up everybody else's thrown away or discarded or trampled on grain, hoping that they can gather enough to maybe feed themselves. This is how Ruth is living. 
Well, now Boaz says, no, I want you to come and I want you to sit here and I want you to have some bread and I want you to dip it in this wine vinegar with my employees. I want you to sit amongst them. And they hint him himself. Boaz himself offers her some roasted grain. It doesn't sound like much to us and bread and wine vinegar and roasted grain, but it's probably the best meal that Ruth has had in a long, long time. But what's even more important is that Boaz himself is serving her. This is going to be completely lost on us. But in that, at 3,000 years ago, in this culture, in those days, to a foreign poor po- person in poverty, a widow, to have the landowner invite you to his table and then serve you was unprecedented. It's got gospel connotations dripping all over it, which we're going to get into it next week. But I just want you to see what's unfolding. Now, I told you to keep an eye on these two because they're kind of in love already. But there's something going on here. And he's showing her this unprecedented favor where he's saying, look, not only sit here and have bread with my, my, my employees, the people that work for me, who I care about. We know that he cares about them because remember when he walked into the field last week, we talked about that he said, hey, the Lord bless you. And they replied back, no, the Lord bless you. He says, so sit here with them and have some of this roasted grain. And the story tells us that she ate enough, so much that she is full and she had some even left over. She then gets up, she goes back into the field, and she gleans and works all day long until the evening came. Now, Boaz had looked at these male employees that he has, and he had already told them once not to harm her. Last week, we learned that he had looked at all his employees in the eye, and he said, listen, no matter what happens, I want you not to harm her. Working at being a kind of a single foreign female was a dangerous thing back then. But he looks at his people, and he says, don't touch her. Furthermore, he looks at him this time and he says, actually, here's even, I'm going to take this one step further. I don't want you to embarrass her. Even if she gleans among the sheaves, I don't want you to embarrass her. In fact, what I want you to do is I want you to pull some stalks out from the sheaves and I want you to lay them on the ground so she can pick them up. I mean, this is kind of crazy because gleaning really was the act of kind of scouring whatever was left over. You've got these guys walking through the fields with these giant hand sickles, cutting these stalks of grain, letting them fall. Then you have these women and children that were employed by the landover that, landover that would come, and they would gather up everything that they could, and they would put them in these giant bundles or sheaves. Then those were transported to the threshing floor, as we talked about last week, and they were beaten so that the stalks and the, 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 the grain, kind of heads of grain were separated, and they would winnow them. They would get, actually blow the chaff away, and then they would basically bag them and transport them and all those kind of things. But they would gather them in these huge sheaves. And the whole point of a harvest was not to lose anything, right? The idea was you wanted to gather as much as you could. But the law allowed for those, those people, those that could not work for themselves, to come by and pick up the trash, the garbage, the things that were trampled on. When the women were binding this stuff, they would leave those that weren't worth, they were cut short or they weren't worth picking up. You gleaned on the outside edges of the field. But Boaz says, listen, if she comes walking where she shouldn't be, if she's kind of meandering through the sheaves, through the actual bundles, and not on the outside of the field where widows and orphans and people in poverty and foreigners stay, he goes, I don't want you to rebuke her. Don't look at her and say, what are you doing? Get out there where you should be with the other people of poverty and the other foreigners and the other widows. You go over there. He said, no, don't embarrass her. In fact, what I want you to do in terms of giving her dignity is I want you to reach into those giant bundles and I want you to pull out stalks of grain and I want you to lay them on the ground for her. Basically giving incredible dignity to to Ruth as she walked through there and she now is picking up the good stuff. I mean, the good stuff. Says that she worked hard all afternoon into the evening and then she threshed what she had collected. And probably what that meant is that she didn't take it all over to the threshing floor, but she took a, a giant stick or a curved stick and she just beat that 
that stalks of grain, gathered up the kernels of grain. It says that it amounted to what was about an ephah, which is, there's a lot of debate on what that is, but it basically amounts somewhere in the vicinity of about four and six gallons of grain, which is about 30 to 50 pounds worth of grain. Now, just to put this in perspective, our author isn't telling us that because he's trying to fill our story with facts, right? Every, the story is so small. Everything that's in there is with an incredible importance to detail. Put in perspective, an average worker that worked the fields was often paid a ration of what they harvested. So they oftentimes weren't paid in money. They were paid in rations, product. And an average worker would get about one pound to one and a half pounds per day for how hard they worked. And here is Ruth, who just threshed out four to six pounds of grain, amounting to about a half a month's salary in one day, about $2,000 worth of stuff. She bags all that stuff up. I mean, this was a huge day. Bags all that up, 50, 40 pounds worth of stuff, slings it over her shoulder, and walks all the way back to her mother-in-law. And when her mother-in-law sees her coming, she's blown away. She's astonished. Not only does Ruth just unload 30, 40 pounds of grain, but she says, here's my leftover lunch. I had roasted grain and bread with wine vinegar, and I brought home what I couldn't eat to you. Here's Naomi living in poverty, hasn't eaten like this, and hasn't seen any promise in her life. Remember, she's changed her name to bitterness. And all of a sudden, Ruth shows up with this incredible blessing. And Naomi's response is, Oh my gosh, like how, who, what, when, who is this guy? They let you glean his field like this because this is not how it works. You either did it wrong or someone really blessed you. And, and Ruth goes, you're not going to believe it, but it's this guy named Boaz. And, and, and Naomi says, man, man, God bless him. He has not stopped showing his kindness, right, to the living and the dead. And then she says this, he is one of our kinsmen redeemers which is a real turning point for our story. Our whole story is going to turn on that verse, verse 20 of chapter 2. He is a kinsman redeemer. And the rest of the story is going to fall in the shadow of this idea of kinsman redeemership. But he says he's one of our kinsman redeemers. Then she gives, him some pretty wise, gives her some pretty wise counsel. Look, stay with this guy, right? And, uh, and Ruth says, you're not going to believe this, but he said I could work till the barley and wheat harvest were over. About seven more weeks of this. And Naomi says, what an incredible blessing. Stay with him. And it says, that's what Ruth did. And our second movement ends with Ruth stayed until both harvests were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. And the story and that narrative kind of draws to a close. Now, I thought really long and hard about how we could really unpack this. But there's really, what I want you to see comes out of one verse. And that one verse is really the whole pivot for this entire book. Everything hinges on what takes place in this one verse. And it's verse 20, and it's really powerful. And there's two things that I want you to see this morning as we kind of think about the story and and the nature of God's redemption. But we're seeing a a heart change in Naomi. Look at verse 20. Verse 20, Naomi says this. She says, the Lord bless him, talking about Boaz, bless Boaz. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, he has not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead. She added, this man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. Now we're beginning to see Naomi's awakening to the kindness of God. Now scholars have gone back and forth to who Naomi was referring to when she says he has not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead. Is she referring to Boaz or is she referring to the Lord? Both are probably right, but I tend to think that she's actually 
kind of talking about who God is because she uses a really important special word that I'll tell you about in just a second. But Naomi is wakening up to the kindness of God. Because say what you want to about Naomi. Say that she's bitter, say that she's hopeless, say that she's mad at God and angry and all those things, which she was and which she probably still is. But one thing that you can't say about her is that at every turn, she knew that God was in control. Whether his hand was for her or whether his hand was against her, God was moving and she never questioned that. But we're beginning to see this shift in Naomi's attitude, and, and, and rightly so. She's beginning to wake up and see that it's God who has been moving all along, and that God's kindness is real. That it's God who convinced Ruth to stay with her. It's God who provided the lifting of the famine with the barley harvest. It's God who directed Ruth to this field of this guy named Boaz who happened to be a kinsman redeemer in the line of Elimelech, and he was a man of great standing. It's God who provided this incredible generosity and favor where Boaz was protecting Ruth. Don't harm her, don't touch her, and don't embarrass her. More so, let her collect all she wants from the very best stuff and let her do it with dignity. And it's God who said, not only is there enough food here, but I want you to continue to work. She's beginning, I think, to place all these things together. She's beginning to wake up to the kindness of God. And here's why I think that this picture is really about Naomi's awakening to the kindness of God. That, ver- that word kindness is one that we've actually talked about before. A few weeks ago, or a few months ago, actually, I talked about it. But I want you to see it again. The word that gets translated from the Hebrew, right there, the word kindness, he has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead, is the Hebrew word hesed. Now, we've talked about this word before because it's incredibly important. It's actually supremely untranslatable, all right? It doesn't translate as kindness. It doesn't really translate at all because it means so many powerful things. But here we see it translated as kindness. In Psalm 103, we see it translated as loving kindness. We also see it translated as grace, as loyalty, as covenant. This word encompasses so much about God's abounding nature, his relentless love, that you've got to understand how important it is. So hesed, really, when you look at it in the Hebrew, is really tied to four massive principles, all right? The first thing that it's tied to is it's tied to God's extreme loving kindness, which is really this idea of unconditional love. Often it's translated that way, that God is abounding in love. God's loving kindness is so powerful. It is this sort of extravagant, unexplainable love that goes beyond all human comprehension. That even when people are broken and messed up, God still loves them. That even when the Israelites redeem or or run and they rebel, God still has a desire to redeem them. That the Israelites wander and they worship other gods and they reject God and they, they run from him. But God still loves them. This sort of unconditional pursuing love is wrapped up in the word hesed. So you get the first phase of that, which is this sort of loving kindness. And when it's translated that way, it really only applies to God. The second thing we really see this idea of hesed attached to is the idea of grace. It's where we get the idea of grace in the New Testament. It's undeserved and unmerited blessing by God. So when God shows grace to people in the Old Testament, the oftentimes the word that's used there is the word hesed. That God's grace, in other words, these people don't deserve God's goodness, God's favor. God's merit, but yet God shows them hesed. God shows them this grace. So you've got this extravagant love tied with this incredible grace. Now you also see the word hesed attached to the idea of covenant. Covenant. 
Now, in fact, it's used so often in terms with covenant that it sometimes can even be used as a synonym. Now, when God covenanted with people, he was making a promise with them. When he covenanted with the people of Israel, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will be your God and you will be my people. And God's covenants were always held true. So the idea of, of Hesed, when ter- used in terms of covenant, is the idea of God is, well, he's, he's never failing. And when he makes a promise, God keeps it. God is a covenant God, and God's people were the Israelites. And so when he's living in that Hesed with them, he is saying that even when you reject me, my covenant with you holds secure. I will not fail you. I will not leave you. I am faithful when you are faithless. When you look at covenant and grace and loving kindness all kind of tied together, you get the depth and sense of this word. That idea of loyalty is wrapped up in there. But the final thing that that Hesed really attached to is the word truth. Sixteen times in the Old Testament it's used interchangeably with the word truth. Because God's loving kindness, His grace, His covenant loyalty and truth were synonymous. Sometimes we try and divorce God from what truth is. And truth is subjective. But reality in scripture is that truth is not subjective. In fact, Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So this word hesed that Naomi uses is really important because she's saying he has not stopped showing his hesed, his abounding, gracious, loyal, covenant, truthful love to both the living and the dead. See, I think what we're seeing is Naomi awakening to God's kindness. That she begins to see these things as they unfold. And sometimes it takes a long time for us to see God's move, doesn't it? Sometimes, you know, we think that God is against us and things aren't happening and life is unfolding in a way that we don't want. And it's not until we get to the other side that we're able to look back and say, man, God was at move the whole time. God was at work throughout that whole situation. And I didn't see it. And this is exactly where Naomi is. She had spent that huge period of time being bitter and angry, asking to change her name. And now she's starting to see blessing, right? And she's starting to line up all these things and saying, He, I believe she's talking about God, has not stopped showing His hesed, his, that kind of love for us. That even though life was hard, right? She's awakening to the fact that God's kindness, God's grace-filled, truth-filled, covenant, loyal love has never left. I think that sometimes in our own life, we have to awaken to this. We have to reawaken to God's kindness. We get so blinded by circumstances and situations in our own life that we fail to even see God's move, God's direction, God's hand of providence, God's promise at play. I, so often in my life, need to reawaken to God's kindness. The truth of Scripture is God is unfailing. He never leaves nor forsakes. That his love is grace-filled, abounding, truthful, covenant, loyal love that will never fail. And sometimes these moments in our life come where we're like Naomi, we have to reawaken to those truths. And sometimes it takes moments of great despair to see how great God is. But what we see unfolding right here is that one principle. Naomi is waking up to God's kindness. And it's going to change her outlook and everything for the rest of the story. Sometimes we need to, like Naomi, fall on our face and reawaken to God's kindness, to realize that he is at work all the time. That's his promise. The second thing that I want you to see, and we'll kind of wrap up with this this morning, comes out of the second part of that verse. It says this, 
that he has not stopped showing kindness to us, the living or the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. Now, I told you earlier that a kinsman redeemer was this relationship that was at play, where if someone, because they had a debt, sold themselves into slavery or servitude, a kinsman redeemer was a close relative that could come in and purchase that person back by paying off their debt. A kinsman redeemer was also someone who, if you had a brother or a really close, close relative and he passed away and he left a widow, a kinsman redeemer could come in and marry, although not obligated all the time, could come in and marry that woman to continue that family line. And in some cases, if it was a close relative, it was a legal obligation, right? And a kinsman redeemer could also, if a family went into extreme poverty and sold some land, the kinsman redeemer was allowed by law to come and purchase the land back for that family and give it back to them. So although an odd concept to us, it played a really important role in sort of that kind of culture 3,000 years ago. Well, Naomi says that this Boaz, right, who life was desperate just a few short days earlier, right, this Boaz, he's one of our close relatives. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. Now, there's something really interesting at play here because while Naomi speaks truth in spirit, it's not really truth in terms of the letter of the law. You see, Ruth was a foreigner. She was a, Moabite, she was a Moabitess. Boaz had no legal obligation to redeem Ruth. But Naomi loves Ruth in this really deep way, in sort of this, I consider you my daughter kind of way. We have walked through tragedy. You have followed me, right? You are mine. And, and it seems as though the entire community, Boaz included, has sort of accepted that truth. Now, what's important about this is that there's a real picture of the nature of God's redemption here. While Boaz has no legal obligation to redeem or to show this kind of graciousness to Ruth, he does so because of his love for her and the grace that he has. I'm going to talk at length about this next week, but I just want you to see a glimmer of it today. And that is this. This is the picture of the nature of God's redemption. God doesn't have any legal obligation to redeem and rescue us. But he does it out of this incredible hesed, this incredible, truth-filled, grace-filled, extravagant love. Do you know the kind of renowned preacher and teacher of Charles Spurgeon once said this, Boaz, or Jesus, is our glorious Boaz. What he's saying is that this is the picture of the gospel, that Jesus is our glorious redeemer. He's glorious, meaning better than Boaz, but he is that picture of redemption, that what he didn't have to do, through his loving kindness, he did for us. That he purchased us out of, a real, out of sin and death and into a relationship of promise and into an eternal life picture that comes from a redemption that only God can give. See, the nature of God's redemption is that you can't earn it and you can't work for it. But because of his incredible love and kindness, he lavishes it on us. Here's what we walk away with from the, our, our kind of close of movement to this morning. Naomi is awakening to God's kindness. And I think that we go through seasons in our life where we need to reawaken to God's loving kindness. That we need to be reminded that God is for us. And that he's laying foundation stones for his glory and for greater joy in our life. So this morning, maybe that's what you need to hear. Maybe you need to hear the fact that God is loyal. That God loves you in an extravagant way. And he is drawing you into a relationship with him. And then we need to reawaken to his kindness, his loving kindness, his hesed. And two, the nature of God's redemption is not something that you deserve. 
Sometimes we think that God owes us. Everybody else seems to be getting something. Everybody else seems to be getting blessing. God owes me. We'd never say that out loud, but we have that restless feeling in our, God owes you nothing. The very fact that God loves you and redeems you is part of his incredible grace. The nature of God's grace as played out through Boaz is that he is our glorious redeemer. And that's what we gather here this morning to celebrate. Reawakening to God's incredible kindness because the nature of God's redemption is one of free grace. Let's pray together.